You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, it's been said that in Washington, D.C., bad ideas never really go away. They just get renamed and reintroduced. So today we're going to talk about the PRO Act, which is now on its third attempt to make it through Congress and which President Biden has sworn he'd sign if it ever reaches his desk. And for those of you who don't know, the PRO Act is a radical rewrite of American labor law, which has huge financial ramifications for our economy. And for those who are unfamiliar with it, it is a massive bill that if ever passed and signed into law, will reshape the American economy and fundamentally transform, i.e. destroy, the free enterprise system as we know it. Now, some of you may be thinking that that's hyperbolic rhetoric, but it's not. In the PRO Act, from the government putting private employers into government-dictated union contracts on a sectoral-style bargaining basis to destroying the franchise model as well as the gig economy. As I said before, it is a radical rewrite of American labor law that will either reshape, possibly destroy the American economy and fundamentally transform our free enterprise system. And it's got financial costs that haven't even been fully determined yet. In fact, a 2019 Congressional Business uh, Congressional Budget Office estimate on the financial impact of the PRO Act stated this, quote, for the private sector, CBO, again, Congressional Budget Office, cannot anticipate the number of businesses likely to be affected by the bill or the extent of changes in their labor practices resulting from it. Therefore, CBO cannot estimate the cost to comply with many of those requirements, end quote. Now, for persons in the federal government willing to affect or destroy the American economy in such a drastic way and not be able to even estimate how badly their actions could affect the lives of millions upon millions of their citizens is pretty irresponsible. And it's a pretty damning indictment of the bill itself. However, my guest today has put pencil to paper, so to speak, and determined that certain provisions, not all of them, but certain provisions of the PRO Act may prove very costly to the American economy. In fact, one provision, which is the imposition of the ABC test, which is what California's AB5 is based on and what destroyed so many livelihoods in California, will affect upwards of 70 million Americans who currently do some sort of freelancing or gig work and potentially put more than $2 trillion of GDP at risk. So joining me today is Isabella Hindley. She's a policy analyst with the American Action Forum, and she's been doing research on the economic consequences of the PRO Act and written several pieces on it, which I'll include in the links under the audio portion of this episode. And as as I've been reading her work, I thought it would be good to have her come on Labor Relations Radio and share some of her findings with you. 
Here's Isabella Hindley. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Isabella, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. So I suspect you're somewhere up in in or around D.C., right? I am, yep. We are on Pennsylvania Avenue, just just a couple minutes from the White House, so in on the action. Right. Um, so could you give us a background in terms of what the American Action Forum is? Sure, yeah. So AAF is an independent 501c3 free market think tank is the overview. We focus on data-driven insight into center-right economic, domestic, fiscal policy issues. Um, so everything that I share with you today, all my thoughts and comments, those are mine. So I don't speak for AAF in, in this instance, but everything we do is very based in economic impacts of whatever policies are out there at the moment. And specifically for me, in my place at AAF, I focus on the labor market and immigration policy. Okay, so I've got to ask, because we were speaking just before I hit the record button for a few minutes, but I did not detect the accent when we were speaking. So give us a little bit about your background and how you got into this. Okay, um, so I'm from the UK originally, a long time ago, if you can believe it. I know the accent is still strong, but I moved to the US when I was six years old back in 2006. So it should really be gone by now, but it's not. Um, My parents were both Royal Air Force, and my dad's position brought us over here, and we just stayed here ever since. It's a very long and complicated story, and um, a true true testament to the longevity of the immigration system. (laughs) But um, still here, yeah. Oh, good. So, um, and you're a graduate of Elon University, right? Yeah. Yes, I am. So um, the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is you've you've issued a couple of papers or written a couple of papers. One is on the economic impact of the PRO Act. Mm-hmm. And, and like everything else um, in Washington, if there's a bad idea, it just sticks around and gets renamed. And this is, the I think, the third attempt that um, Congress has looked at the PRO Act. And prior to that, 10, 12 years ago was the Employee Free Choice Act. But right. the PRO Act is like EFCA or the Employee Free Choice Act um, on steroids because it's got so much more to it. Yep. And you've done a breakdown on the economic costs, or at least the estimated economic costs of the PRO Act in a couple of different areas. Do you, do you want to share that? Sure, happy to break it down. So ultimately, in this piece, I focused on four provisions that I think are the most costly. Um, We looked at reclassifying independent contractors, changes to the joint employer standard, what it looks like removing right to work from the 26 states that have it, and also businesses' inability to replace striking workers. So those are the provisions that I focused on. Ultimately, the piece found that employment costs would increase from anywhere from 18 to 61 billion dollars, which is obviously not insignificant, and then it would risk up to about 2.3 trillion dollars of GDP. Um, I'll break it down just a little bit further sure. um, if you, if you want. So for independent contracting, I think that's the most costly provision. What it would do is narrow the 
definition of what it means to be an independent contractor, it would put the ABC rule in place like AB5 did in California. Um, and so the 73 million independent contractors or freelancers that we have in the US would be at greater risk of reclassification as an employee. Um, for some people, this would be a good thing. The concern I think for the government is that we have rampant misclassification of workers and a lot of independent contractors are not getting the uh, benefits or the pay that they should have were they to be classified as a traditional W-2 employee. My issue with that is that we're actually seeing that only about 9% of independent contractors would prefer traditional employment. So most of the people in these freelance roles are where they want to be. If they were to be reclassified, that would be a big loss of autonomy and flexibility for them and their working careers, which is an, a personal issue. But then on the cost side, we're looking at employers could be subject to that 18 to 61 billion extra dollars in employment costs. And in terms of loss of productivity, should we see workers moving around or maybe um, taking the job loss if they don't want traditional employment or things like that, we could be looking at about $2.2 trillion of GDP kind of in influx. So can, can I ask a, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. So if, and it's, I've had a number of freelancers um, on the podcast and one of the issues with AB5, for example, and this happened literally as they passed it, um, for example, Vox Media announced that they're getting rid of all of their freelancers out in California with AB5. Mm-hmm. And so the requirement would be upon employers to hire what are now deemed freelancers, either full or part-time. But as an employer, if you're going to have to hire somebody with all the different loaded labor costs, benefits, et cetera, why have, you know, say 10 10 independent contractors when you could just hire who do the work part-time, you could just hire two to three full-timers and then get rid of the seven or eight, you know, independent contractors. Like, is, yeah. has that been looked at with the job loss in that regard? Um, I'm not sure that it's been looked at as specifically um, in terms of job loss in that. I think Independent contractors come into their own when the jobs that need to be done are not jobs that need to be done all year round, right? It's something that it's an issue that comes up or it's um, some extra labor or some extra work that comes up maybe for the next month or two and you need someone to fill the slot. That's when you would bring in an independent contractor or a freelancer. Um, You would also bring someone in if it were, say, a, a task that is not typical of the business that you're in, um, right? So take take um, contractors, for example, i.e. like people that come into your house, do your kitchen, renovate your kitchen for you. They're mostly independent contractors because you're not right. going to need someone to be fixing your kitchen every day of the year, right? Companies need that every once in a while. So that's the benefit of the independent contractor. There are instances where I'm sure it would be better to hire a couple of employees to do to do work rather than more independent contractors. Um, and I think that's probably where we see some misclassification issues because it should be the job of an employee, really. But 
companies are trying to get away with hiring under the independent contractor umbrella so that they can pay less, hold back on wages, hold back on benefits, things like that. So that's definitely a thing. Sometimes employees are needed and sometimes they aren't classified correctly. But in certain instances, an independent contractor is all you need for that little bit. And that's then beneficial for the independent contractor because they work with one company for a month, two months. At the same time, they could be working with someone else in the afternoons, or they can then move on to another job that's going to take them a couple of weeks. And they're bringing in income from multiple different sources, which sometimes adds up to more than they would get were they to be hired as an employee by one company. Right. Well, you know, I think part of this whole misclassification argument, um, it's kind of increased as we've gone to app-based drivers, Uber, mm-hmm. Lyft, and all that sort of stuff. And sure. I've, I've, of course, taken Uber, and I've, you know, I've, every time I'm in an Uber, because it's a boring ride, I'll ask, you know, how do you like driving, and what do you do, and all that sort of stuff. And I've had an executive chef as an Uber driver who just picks up, you know, an extra shift here or there when he's off work from his normal restaurant job. And he's, you know, it's that flexibility that so many people like. And if employers have to hire these people, you know, then it comes with, oh, we need to set schedules and we need to do this and that. Right now it's, it's pure flexibility. At least the drivers I've talked to, they love it. Yeah. Um, And I think that's very true. I think the autonomy that you have to set your own schedule, the flexibility you have in being able to work for multiple different people and having multiple streams of income, it's all really attractive to independent contractors. And there are certain industries where it's honestly preferable to do that line of work. Take, take performers or musicians, for example. Opera houses probably don't need to hire, you know, one musician for the entire year if they have a show that they're putting on that doesn't require that instrument or something along those lines, you know. So in that case, contracting is really helpful. Musicians can come on for one show. Uh, They can then jump to another venue and do another show over there. And that just makes a lot more sense than keeping one person on retainer for an entire year when they're only really needed for a week's-long amount of shows, if, if that makes sense. And yeah. the same, you know, similar idea for journalists. They prefer some of them to be a freelance writer, go to multiple different papers and, and things like that. So I think when, when we think independent contracting, people in the government, at least, or the people um, on the side of the PRO Act are jumping immediately to misclassification, like these people should be employees. But there are so many different types of independent contractors and gig workers in a lot of different industries. And I think my biggest struggle with the PRO Act is it's a very one-size-fits-all policy that's quite drastic in nature. And independent contractors are not one size. And so it cannot fit them all. Well, you raise an interesting point. And I've raised this on other episodes. Um, So in California, when they passed AB5, it was such an implosion to the um, the freelance gig economy out there that they the legislature legislators had to come back and rewrite the regs or basically exempt people in different professions. And I don't know how they would be able to do that in Congress. Right. You know, once it passes as a law, it's going to be a broad brush that you just mentioned. And right. you're stuck with it. 
Exactly. I mean, we've already, as you said, seen massive pushback uh, on AB5, and that is one state. Fair enough, California is a pretty big state, but, you know, that's one state. And we, just the other day, it was announced that Prop 22 was upheld in an appeals court. So we've already gone through one court battle. We've gone through an appeals court battle, and it was rejected at first, upheld the second time. It's probably going to go to the state Supreme Court. Um, And if that's all happening in one state, that's costly. It's uh, taking up a lot of time and bureaucracy, unnecessary, really, to then put that on a national scale is somewhat irresponsible, I would stretch to say. I, I agree with you. I don't know how they would walk that back for certain people if they would even contemplate it, but they probably should. So passing the legislation in the first place, I think, is just it's going to lead to a lot of extra bureaucracy on the back end once people realize there are a lot of people that aren't benefiting from the policy. So walk me through um, some of the math on the $2.3 trillion on GDP. Is that the sure. loss of productivity? Yeah, my, my focus there was mostly a loss of productivity. So um, most of it is made up by the independent contracting change. Took a look at how many independent contractors there are. There are about 73 million freelancers in the U.S. right now, as I think I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. If we assume similar to... AB5 that we we would most likely be looking at somewhere between 15 and 50% of those freelancers being reclassified. That's going to put about $2.2 trillion at risk, assuming that all of those workers were working at, you know, the average amount of productive hours in a week that a worker tends to, tends to operate on. So it was a fairly basic calculation on, on my end, to be honest. I'm not going to claim to be uh, an Einstein over here. I just took the the percentage of those workers probably impacted, had a look at how many hours they work on uh, on average in a week, and what uh, and how much these workers typically make in an hour. Um, and simple multiplication gets you to about two point two trillion dollars of GDP could be at risk because this loss of productivity or shift of productivity. You know, it's it's probably unsafe to say that that full. 2.2 or 2.3 trillion, if you're looking at the whole bill, would be lost because I'm sure some people would restructure, change jobs, take traditional employment, you know, things like that. So we wouldn't lose the full 2.3 trillion, but it would be in flux, and we don't really know how people would react to the reclassification or um, the joint employer standard or you know any of the other provisions really. So you mentioned the joint employer standard. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. Um, Another one that I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of. So the, the idea here is they would change the definition of the joint employer standard and make it more vague. So this is in the PRO Act. It's also um, an NLRB proposed rule at the moment. So we're looking at a couple of different things that could change the standard as it, as it currently stands. So at the moment, it says that in order to be classified as a joint employer, so an entity that is working alongside another entity as an employer of, of a group of workers, you must not only possess the authority 
to make changes to the employment or wage structure, you must also take action with that authority and impose some of some of that control over the employment situation of the group. What the change to the standard would do is it would take away that action requirement and it would only require that a business or an entity has the authority to change it. That is extremely vague. You could interpret that in a million different ways. I am most concerned about how it would impact franchising, and I wrote a piece on that recently that's up on AAF's website. Because if you think about the franchising relationship, you've got the franchises and then the franchisees underneath. As it's set up right now, the franchisees are not employees of the franchisor. They're, they're entrepreneurs, they're business owners. It's a nice way to own a business because you have a bit of support coming from the franchisor, but ultimately it's your business. You should decide the wages and the employment structure at your own franchise if you are a franchisee. Under the new joint employer standard, it would be extremely likely that these franchisors would be reclassified as joint employers simply because they have brand recognition, they provide the basic structure for the franchisees, things like that. You give the franchisor any, any semblance of authority over the workers of the franchisees or of the franchises, sorry, and immediately they will be reclassified. That is a big disincentive to the model. It's going to raise employment costs for the franchises. Um, it's also going to hurt the entrepreneurial spirit of the franchisees because they're going to lose control over their own workers. So well, that's, that's a concern. That goes into the investment in the real estate and the building of the brick and mortar businesses and all that right. sort of stuff. Right, all of the, that. And of course, the... Um, the genesis of this kind of goes back probably 10, 12 years to the uh, SEIU wanting to unionize McDonald's and all the fast food chains. Mm -hmm. And the franchise model is obviously a disruptor to that because each franchisee is a independent business, right? right. So, you know, it's impossible for them to do it. So they've, they've since though, the SEIU has kind of, and everybody's seen on the news, the Starbucks organizing you know, where they've started picking off store by store. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting because they tried going after the entire McDonald's and, and I think Burger King, you know, as kind of the entire entities. And now they're starting to just pick off store by store with Starbucks. So they've changed their approach a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, um, you know, I I think overall franchising is a, is a proven successful business model. Right. Um, for Except if you're a union. It's not not if you're a union. <laughs> not if you're a union. That's, that's correct. Right. Yeah. But if you think about the the franchisees um, and, and their chances of entrepreneurship, 92% of franchises are successful after two years compared to 20% of independently started businesses. So you're more likely if you start a franchise to be successful. That's that's promoting entrepreneurship. That's good as 
as I said earlier, I work on immigration here too, so I'll throw in a, in a bit for the immigrants. Immigrants are extremely entrepreneurial. They're, they're right. a benefit to this country, right? 80%, oh, sorry, immigrants are 80% more likely to start businesses than native-born Americans. So I, I think it's a bad idea to uh, disincentivize entrepreneurship to begin with, but especially if we have immigrants who, that, that's a very logical starting position uh, for them, getting, getting jobs and building, building their lives here. So for franchisees, it's a good thing. For franchisers, franchising makes a lot of sense for them too, right? They get very quick business growth. They don't have to put up the capital up front for these businesses. Right. So they're growing their brand. So I understand for unions, it's not good. They're going to have to go location by location rather than trying to take down something from the very top. But I think for for the, for the key players in, in franchising, it's a very successful and proven model. And right. I would be concerned to see that relationship disincentivized or broken down by the joint employer standard changing, which is likely going to happen. Is there a way to calculate what harm that would do to the economy? Um, trying to think if I did any calculations on it, and I don't think I did any on the economy itself. I think I looked, actually, I'm lying. I did do that calculation. Um, I found, again, it's a risk to GDP, so not necessarily saying we'd lose all, all of this GDP, but uh, could risk between 20 and 39-ish billion dollars of GDP. So in the grand scheme of things for the country, not a, as big an impact as, say, the independent contracting rule. But in addition to the GDP risk, franchises could be looking at like $5.7 million more in employment costs per hour um, if they're having to foot the bill for franchisees' wages and the workers below them. So that's a pretty significant cost. $5.7 million per hour. Mm -hmm. If you consider, so if you can, the way I got to that is I think right now we have somewhere around, I'm trying to remember how many franchisees we have in the U.S. right now. I think I, I just saw, on, I, I saw on your it, post like close to 800,000 or something. I think that might be what it is. Thank you. Yeah. Um, too many numbers, not enough brain space for me. <laughs> um, so I appreciate it. Yeah, I think we're looking at somewhere around 800,000 franchisees. So assume that franchises now acting as joint employers, they're most likely going to be at least partially responsible for the wages of their franchisees because it's now an employer-employee situation. And under National Labor Relations Act, that requires wages. So franchises are going to be responsible for paying at least minimum wage, so that's assume, I assume that's federal minimum wage, for each of these franchisees, that puts you at about $5.7 million per hour for all franchisees, oh, for all franchisers, sorry. Um, but that's not even taking into consideration the workers under each franchisee who might also have some of their wages under, fall under the responsibility of the franchiser. We don't know. 
So significant. So that so that five point seven million per hour is actually very um very light in terms of it's under what it would probably be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it's a conservative estimate, definitely. Yeah, because you're you're talking about the franchisees themselves mm-hmm. and then not counting their employees and not to mention the fact that most people are well above the federal minimum wage across the country now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if 5.7 is already sounding pretty big and that's, uh, as you've just pointed out, a pretty conservative estimate. Yeah, that's very conservative. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'll take a little bit of benefit in the doubt. We'll go with federal minimum wage, but let's be honest, that's not what, that's not what people really should be getting paid. And, Going off of that point further, franchisees right now can just take their own salary from their business, right? So each business is going to be profiting at different levels. It's up to the franchisee to decide what wage they deserve, you know, and what their business can handle. So they are probably taking a far higher wage or salary when it's just predetermined by themselves than they would be getting if it were the franchisor responsible for paying their wage. So let me ask you this. Um, you're one of the few voices out there that have actually done some math on the various provisions of the PRO Act. Do you know if anybody else has or if, for example, um, EPI, which is a, a big pro-union think tank funded by mm-hmm. the unions, like has anybody taken a look at the actual numbers or are they just using talking points to say how good the PRO Act is? not sure how reliant they are on the data. I, I can't I can't speak to that. I'm not sure. I haven't picked their brains specifically. Um, Have you seen anything out there where they've actually, you know, done any kind of economic analysis? I haven't seen many pieces out there that have specific costs or numbers attached. It, it seems to me that a lot of the pro pro act pieces that I've seen have been mostly qualitative, not so quantitative. So I don't well, know qualitative being when you qualitative say quali- being like hyperbole. Qualitative meaning very prose based, not so data based. Right. Hyperbole. Sure. <laughs> okay. I was just curious. Um, does the CBO, is it the CBO that has to do when a bill is introduced, at least a cost analysis on it? Have they done anything? Mm-hmm. Have you seen? Um, I have, I haven't seen, um, actually, I am not sure. I'm sure they are required to, um, but I haven't seen one that I can remember off the top of my head. I'll have to look into it. You know, the, the fun thing about doing an audio-only podcast is I can actually research while we're talking. So There you go. Um, it's good old Google. <laughs> I don't see anything up off the top of the list here. But so you mentioned uh, the strike replacements as well as being mm-hmm. part of the cost you analyzed. And how did you come up with the numbers you came up with? Yeah, so Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS puts out a report um, about the major strikes that have occurred in a year. 
Right. This past year, there were 23 major strikes. Now, my issue I have with BLS's numbers is that they consider a major strike to include 1,000 plus workers. Right. There are obviously far more strikes occurring in a year than those that have 1,000 plus workers. So I, again, went with the conservative estimate because I'd rather be conservative than, than overshoot. And I took those 23 major strikes. They reported that there were about 120,600-ish workers that were involved in those strikes. And I did a nice little productivity calculation again. And I took those workers, how many hours they tend to work, what they're earning, if they were, um, you know, what would the loss of productivity be if they weren't able to work? Because if you, if, or if their jobs were left open, I should say, because the strikers are choosing not to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to make their point, fair enough. For small businesses, that's concerning if they can't replace them. While they're striking, you have an open job. And by not allowing the businesses to fill those roles, at least until the strike is over, you you just have lots of productivity. No one's working the job. Those hours aren't being worked. That income's not existing. That contribution to GDP is not there. And so that's that's how I got to the number. It was just those workers that were reported by BLS as striking and therefore not working. Okay, so those um, are the the big strikes. Yeah, so those are the big strikes, and that was about sixteen billion dollars of of GDP at risk, um, and that's very much not counting the many many other strikes that go on across the country that have less workers involved. Right. Um, I mentioned before we we got on the, about the PROACT's binding arbitration provision because that that's that's where I think there's a another factor that could be talked about with regard to how much that would cost if you've got the government dictating what wages or benefits are going to be. Mm-hmm. And and that being said, within the PRO Act, they're actually doing like living wage. You know, if you're going to accept it or if the government's going to put a contract in, it's got to be able to provide living wages, which is varies by state, you know, and municipality. And then also comparable to other union contracts, which mm. that's where you get into almost sectoral bargaining, right? Which is another area that's financially, you know, troublesome if you're going to get into changing the American economy into sectoral bargaining, which is similar to what they're trying to do in California. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I haven't looked into that provision specifically, so I don't have numbers for you off the top of my head, but. As soon as the government's involved, especially right now with such a pro-union government, um, you know, Biden's said multiple times he's the most pro-union president, we're looking at most likely much higher wages, which in its simplest explanation sounds like a great thing. Everyone wants more money. I won't argue with that. I agree. I would love more money. We all would. But would we all love more money at the risk of pushing inflation further up and then having higher costs, right? It's all connected. Um, right. And so that's that's a concern. Um, and then to turn it into sexual bargaining, I mean, that's going to create, I would argue, probably more income inequality if we're not looking at things from a holistic perspective, but we're looking more 
just within our little sector, you know, suddenly someday someone's going to take a step out of negotiations and be like, whoa, we're doing something extremely different than those people over there. And that's right. a concern in itself. I don't know what they were, that would look like, you know, specifically, but I would imagine those are some some basic changes that we see. And I I would argue that neither one of those were particular benefit particularly beneficial for the country as a whole. So let me ask you this. I started by asking about your accent. You said you're from the UK. Do you follow what's happening in the UK? Is particularly right now with all the strikes and the shutting down of the hospitals and and yeah. Yeah, I keep I keep a vague eye on it. Um, as I said, I moved to the U.S. when I was six, so right. um, you know I've been here a long time, and so this is where I where I focus most of my energy. But I keep an eye on the U.K., especially when it comes to strikes um, and things like that. I have heard stories from family members about the NHS just being overrun, like yeah. ridiculously overrun. Like there are ambulances that are pulling up, and they are just parking outside the hospital and they're not able to bring the patients in to see them because there's no room and there are no employees available or workers available to see them. Um, Well, it's, you know, the unions here in the U S have always wanted to model themselves after European style unionism and that sectoral mm -hmm. bargaining that we're just talking about, which you have in the UK, you've got in France, et cetera. And, you know, you look at what's happening because I, see the news every day with regard to unions and a lot of the strikes that are going on in transportation, like the railways are shut down in in the UK, the hospitals are shut down. You know, it's, it's, you kind of wonder, do you really want what you're seeking? Because, you know, that's not a pretty picture over there. It's not, it's disruptive to say the least. I'll give, I'll give my mom a little shout out here. Um, She was, back in the UK visiting family very recently, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she went to hop on the train, couldn't hop on the train. Right. Because <laughs> strikes. Right. Um, and so she's, you know, driving around in the hire car, which is fine. But when you've lived in the US for like 17 years, driving on the other side of the road, uh, using a stick shift, right. not, doesn't come as naturally as it used to. <laughs> and so sometimes right. the train is a good option. Um, and that just it was an option that wasn't available. Um, so, you know, there's that, there's, as I mentioned with the hospitals, that's ridiculous because that's health and people should always put their health first. And there are emergencies that aren't being addressed because of lack of workers. Um, another friend of mine was studying abroad in, uh, the UK just last year. And a lot of her classes were canceled because there were teachers that went on strike. So I understand the importance of unions, but I also see that in at least my home country, they're extremely disruptive. And so, yes, I do wonder sometimes um, if the U.S. really sees the, the, the other side, the disruptive side, um, to that level of, like, sectoral bargaining and, and, and unionization at that level. But, well, and then you look at a country like France, who literally is, which is literally on fire right now because of Macron right. trying to change the pension system. And right. then unions over here saying we need to have things like universal basic income and, you know, nationalized pensions and all that. And we just, of course, did the bailout. And it's right. one of those, it's one of those weird things. Like, do you really want to be like Europe? Because I think we left Europe and that whole system for a reason. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but, well, Isabella, what else are you working on? 
How am I working on? Um, got a couple of immigration things in the works. I'm taking a look at Schedule A. It's a list put together by the Department of Labor of occupations that have a shortage of native-born workers. Um, it's a way for so typically employers, before they are able to hire foreign workers, they must prove first that they can't find an American to work that job and that were they to bring in foreign workers, they wouldn't be upsetting the prevailing wage levels and things like that for the Americans in those occupations. So the Schedule A list would basically provide proof for them that, hey, there's no American available for this job, go ahead, fire, oh, hire the foreign worker you're good to do that, which would cut down on bureaucracy. It would cut, cut down on the length of time it takes to, to hire foreigners. Um, and it would overall help us deal with the current worker shortage we're seeing in the labor market. Problem with Schedule A is at the moment it hasn't been updated since 1991. Mm. And um, obviously labor markets changed quite a bit since then. So I'm, I'm doing a, a little primer on that just to spread some education on what Schedule A is. Um, I know there are some people at Brookings working um, on the topic as well. So there's a group of us just trying to draw attention to that. Uh, so that's something I'm working on. I'm also uh, in the process of finding data about how many international students we have in the health field, because that's where I think some of our, our biggest labor shortages are right now in the health Healthcare. field. And so trying to see if there was there would be any way that, allowing our international students to have easier access to green cards and be able to stay in this country post-education would help us with our health workforce labor shortage. Um, are, you, are you doing anything on um, demographics in the aging baby boomers? And Wall Street Journal just had an article, and I've been looking at this um, these population pyramids for a few months now. And the fact that we're losing more workers than we're generating just due to the retirements of baby boomers. Like the yeah. labor labor participation or the labor force participation rate is like way out of whack right now. It's not going to get any better. No, it, it is out of whack. And I haven't, I haven't done any specific research on it in terms of um, finding more, more data and doing some calculations on it, but it's a, it's a growing concern. We are, Seeing a lot of people, especially after COVID with early retirement and, um, you know, factors like that, we're seeing a lot of people leaving the labor force and not a, people, not a lot of people replacing them. Um, a concern of mine is the lack of males that we have going to college, the numbers dropping increasingly, um, which I think is interesting and not good for long-term success of country, labor force, et cetera. Uh, so, and I think I think there's also a heavy reliance on college in the United States. A lot of people are forced to believe that that's the logical next step post high school. Right. Um, so, promoting apprenticeships and vocational trainings and things like that, I've always thought is something beneficial. Um, I'm not doing any work on it actively, but the a personal thought. I think we need to get more people trained in a way that suits them so that we are counteracting the amount of people that we're seeing retire and leave the workforce right now. Yeah. Well, I think all of these kind of, um, 
they beg the discussion that is politically untenable right now because it's basically immigration. We're not going to be able to reproduce enough people in the generations below the mm-hmm. baby boomers to fulfill the work needs. And the only way to solve it is really going to be immigration. Yeah. And, and that's true. on the right, you know, and they don't want to talk about it, at least on the, on the grassroots level. Yeah. And I think there's a way to do it legally that doesn't necessarily need, mean open borders, which is what everybody's right. concerned about. Right. I think, I think the biggest point of contention with immigration right now is the border, right? right? No one, no one wants to make moves on immigration because the border is so contentious. Republicans want it completely shut. Um, Democrats don't necessarily want to open, but they want to increase asylum caps and, you know, let more people in. And as long as the two parties stay so polarized on the border, I don't think we're going to be able to make headway in any other aspect of immigration either, because it's always going to be a little caveat, an asterisk on the on the document, you know. Um, there must be a border amendment in there somewhere, and that's never going to be agreed upon. So... But I agree with you that immigration is a sensible way to fix this worker shortage. We You're going to have to. We, we have to. There is foreign talent out there that wants to work in this country. Um, I mean, I'm very uh, fortunate in that I, I was able to stay here because my father was very active in the military and he was helping the U.S. military. And so we were able to stay based on national merit and our contribution right. to the country, not everyone has that story, right? Some people are just relying on their talent and their brain, and that, you would think, should be enough to give them a pretty good shot to stay in this country. But with the H-1B system the way it is and the lottery not allowing a lot of people in, we're not retaining the talent that we need to fill the shortage and the immigrants need to stay here and, and make a good life for themselves. So. I think there need there need to be some um, some changes made to the green card process and to the H one B visa system um, to retain talent that we we could have pretty pretty easily, but we but we kind of let it slip. Well, nobody wants to have the conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> no, or they're okay having the conversation, but coming to a solution is a, is a real challenge. Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. I am, I am hopeful in the very long term. <laughs> I don't know how hopeful I am for a solution soon. Yeah, it's um, yeah because right now we're just going further and further apart on both sides. And and the last time it was brought up and some quote solution was there was back in I want to say two thousand seven two thousand eight with the Gang of Eight, which was Rubio mm-hmm. and I think McCain and a couple others on the right, and then. Kennedy was involved, Ted Kennedy, and that just blew up on both sides, mostly the right. But, you know, Rubio has been deemed a sellout, I think, since then. So, you know, it's, and I don't think they're going to be able to come back together anytime soon. Right. Yeah. It's immigration is contentious. Um, It's the one thing that dreadfully needs to be fixed and that no one wants to attempt because it's, it's, Political suicide at the end of the day, isn't it? To try and touch immigration and make a big change on it. I, I think 
you're, you're going to get a lot of backlash from whatever side you're on trying to make immigration changes. So um, that's unfortunate considering what, what a labor shortage we have and how beneficial immigration would be. <laughs> at well, the I think, yeah. And, and on top of that, it's, it's a political cudgel that both sides use against each other and it's convenient. Yeah. So, yeah. and they want to keep it that way because they can get votes. If, if one side says we need to you know, have open borders or legalize everybody. And then the other side says we need to close the border and they just beat each other over the head with it and get right. voters out based on those talking points, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So. The, it, it's an enemy of good policy <laughs> right there. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Isabella, I appreciate you coming on. It was a pleasure to meet you and your work is fascinating. So it's kind of like in my wheelhouse. So I'm always watching for stuff like that. Oh, well, I appreciate you having me on. This has been a lot of fun and um, hopefully we'll continue to put out some, some helpful pieces. So yes. happy to talk again, should, should the opportunity arise. This has been great. Thank you. Well, Isabel, Isabella Hindley from the American Action Forum. Thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Thank you so much. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Elizabeth Henley with the American Action Forum. And to date, she is the only person that I've been able to find that has done any kind of serious analysis as to the costs of the PRO Act and the consequences of it, should it ever be signed into law. It's shocking to me that the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, isn't even able to put a price tag on it. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter. That's at Workplace Report, at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Wash my sins away Whoa, black cream You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.